and welcome to this podcast called Incoases, where we are building a platform that attempts to capture the experiences of being engaged in psychoanalytic psychotherapy in various variegated and vaguely defined contexts and through a wide nexus of locations on, off, behind and beyond the analytic couch. Here we talk about the messy, beautiful, astounding and meaningful processes that are currently shaping the present and future of this field through a growing community of thinkers and writers immersed in it. Incoasis is a space where we can diffuse some of the mist around the headlight question, Aakhir ye Indian psychoanalysis kya hai? What is Indian psychoanalysis anyway? My name is Ipsata and I want to explore this ginormous inquiry the same way I do everything I love, through stories and ideas. Through these conversations, my colleagues and I shall engage with our narratives and reflections as trainees, practitioners, academics, professors, supervisors, patients, caretakers, all those locations from where we experience and create psychoanalysis in India with a spirit of curiosity and creativity. I have the rare pleasure of welcoming a friend, a colleague, possible doppelganger of mine if only I could have a Yoda model with my bone structure. <laughs> Gagan Aluvalia has single-handedly added incalculable value to my training as a therapist in all the spaces we've shared as students. And so today as she begins to explore the question of rage experienced by the othered feminine, I'm so grateful to invite her to share her processes out loud with Incoasis. She has promised me a series, so this may just be an hour-long teaser of all that's yet to come. Begin now, we must. that I gifted to you. <laughs> That's really cool. I have been wearing it uh, off and on. But this is so sweet that you wear it all the time. Obviously, I didn't know that because... Uh... Yeah, I wear it so much that, you know, uh, this this star right here like fell off. I had to like order like special glue to fix it. Oh my god, my gift is high maintenance. <laughs> yeah, I forgot this glue. I'm just um, grateful that oh boy. it hangs thanks to the super-powered glue. So, uh, I've been struggling to come up with an introduction for you as always. And as always, as in, I always struggle to find introductions. But with you, it's like now I know you so much, I don't know how to introduce you. I don't know what to say about you. <laughs> Oh, oh, to be known that well is both a pleasure and a pain. It really is. And I mean no offense by that. I mean, you know exactly how knowledge can both be a terrifying thing and, and, and this really amazing thing. And to know a person that well that you don't know where to start. Yeah. 
talking about them is um, is is it's a wonderful feeling and i feel i feel blessed that you feel like that about me yeah well i do i do it's a blessing indeed <laughs> not for enough of the podcast but like in general it's a blessing yeah. but, um okay so I'm, what do i say about you gagan alwal psychotherapist <laughs> amazing person great friend um one of the most stimulating conversationalists i know and that's why you're here <laughs> thank you thank you very much okay uh, um, i always carry this tiny um fear that you know my conversation is putting people to sleep like you know their eyes are open and they're looking at me but inside their brain they're like <gasps> oh <laughs> I don't know who gave you that feedback and why you internalized that but screw them. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Okay, well one important thing to say about you for today's podcast is that you are interested in the question of rage mm-hmm. and um experienced by you by people like you who either identify as women or are identified as women and have to struggle with the forces of patriarchy as we call them i just like you to uh tell us a little bit well tell me because i'm the only one here sitting alone in a room <laughs> um but yeah tell me about uh what this question looks like right now for you it's one of the hardest things to to describe how this question looks because this question is never a question in its own right it's never only about rage it's never only about female rage it's never only about you know it's it's not as simple as cause and effect um it's not as simple as think i would like it to be that simple so that i can explore it even formulating this question is frankly a pain in the butt because how do you think of rage and not think of the things that contribute to it and how many of those contributing factors are out of your control they are not something that you've done or something that has been done to you it involves gender it involves caste privilege class privilege race privilege involves so much the privilege of language the privilege mm. of having the space to use language mm. uh the privilege to utter and before that before all that it comes to a very basic space of the ability or the privilege to to pay attention the space to pay attention mm. to the fact that there is rage I hope that's a little informative about why this question looks like, you know, a Jackson Pollock <laughs> um, rather than a cubism or or like Da Vinci or a Picasso. It sounds like as we try to formulate a question about rage and the feminine or the female or woman, it sounds like we have met privilege at the doorstep. and i'm curious about what your relationship awareness experience of your privilege does to your desire and even attempts to engage with the question of rage or even perhaps your experience of it that that question is called podcast in itself the the most um, 
amazing thing is that privileges that I talked about, they're also not really recognizable as privileges. They are a matter of happenstance. It happened. So it happened. I am a woman. It happened. It, I, I was not made in a lab. My parents did not create me out of a preset chosen genetic markers. I was born and they realized I was a girl and I was then raised as a girl. And I was born to a, this particular uh, couple and they have a certain history of education, privilege, deprivation, whatever. To even explore my own privilege, I have to come to a moment of recognition, of looking it in the face, of looking myself in the face and, and recognizing that there is privilege here. Especially when, if you're born a woman, your life doesn't feel like it's privileged. And uh, you and I have talked about this, so I know a lot more than a listener would. And I really leave it up to you to decide how much you orient. Well, it is up to you <laughs> to talk as much about yourself as you're comfortable. But your family and the generations that have come before you, I think there's a dappled history of privilege there. There's there's a lot. You know, it's interesting that you say that. And it has been quite complex for all of us. But considering my own background, I am third generation survivor of the partition of our country. It's a very unique case where my parents, both my parents were born a few years after the partition mm-hmm. in India. They came from what is uh, perhaps now considered Pakistan, but in our minds, we can't talk about it as if it's a foreign country. In our, in our minds, we think about it as home. We think about it as our ancestral space. And it has been completely blocked to us. My parents don't have memories. And, and they have very specific blocks and gaps in memories of of uh, what life was like before the partition. And they know they were born in a space of economic deprivation. They were born in a space of displacement. Their families were displaced. They've lived in camps and then they eventually moved to houses and they were afforded education of a certain kind. I remember that when my parents were trying to look for schools for me, kindergarten or primary, they had choices, you know, not this school, this school or this school. They had a list and they 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 wanted me to go to their top one of the top three that they chose. There were choices, but when my parents were growing up and education was not, there was no choice. <laughs> there was no choice. If you wanted to get an education, it was just this school and then it was this university because that is all that could be done and that is all that could be afforded. So to come from a background of my grandparents where there was privilege, economic safety and assurance and they owned a house and the entire extended family lived together. There were fields and farms and jobs guaranteed and to do. And and by jobs, I mean you know, personal um, business-like uh, setup, industry, a minor, tiny industry where the entire family would work. And to have that kind of safety 
and then to be displaced in a snap of uh, your fingers and then not just displaced, displaced with a violence and not the violence that comes from a hurry of moving, a violence that comes from a fear of loss and of life and limb and dignity and and, and this ripping away of, of your very humanity. To move from, from that space to a space where you're living in in camps, there's no privacy, there, there are no walls, there is no roof, and the ground beneath your feet is not yours to walk on, and the bewilderment, and then to grow up in this weird, it was there but is no longer, but we wish it wasn't sort of a emotional climate, and then to have kids, and then work all your life to, to bring back some of that safety to your kids. It's, it's it, of course it makes it complex. Of course it makes it, it's like a Gordian knot. You don't know if you, you want to unravel it, you want to get to the root of it. But if there is a singular root, how are you going to cut through it? You can't cut through it. You can't take a sword and or a knife and chop away and the knots. You have to patiently move one thread from one place to another, try and unravel it. But the more you unravel it, the more intense it becomes. I mean, and that's just my experience. And there, there are so many other things that have happened to our people in this country together. There's been so many experiences of violence. There's been so many um, experiences of displacement and uprootedness that I, I know nothing about. I cannot comment on, but perhaps what we all carry is this really rough terrain where we don't really know which way is up, which way is down. We just trudge along doing the best we can. What does this do to your sense or hope for going on being? All our lives, we are negotiating death. We are born and everybody's immediately on high alert. It's an infant and you make a weird sound and everybody needs to immediately know, are you choking? Are you breathing? Is is your airway restricted? And then in, as you grow up, there's these million instructions, you know, don't do this, you will hurt yourself. Uh, if you do this, you will hurt yourself. And if you hurt yourself too much, you might die. If you do this too much, you might die. If you, the fear of death is so strong. Little kids, when they're being cautious and naughty, often you will hear parents tell them someone some evil figure, bad clown, scary clown, some Baba type figure will come and take you and kill you. And and it's all all our lives. It's a negotiate negotiating um, constant negoci- negotiation with death. This year has been one of those really long and trying periods where we're all navigating death and loss and I will not even go there right now towards 2020 but what it does to our sense of being. The reason I bring up negotiations with death is in all these years no one actually tells you how to go on living, how to embrace aliveness and life how to, what to engage in fearlessly and joyfully because it brings you this sheer sense of being alive. There is this whole YOLO thing, you only live once. You have the whole carpe diem people out there doing their thing. 
these things signify something else they they tell you that you know you only live once or do all the things that make you afraid go skydive and go out and get blackout drunk or ask that boy out or girl out or you know all those things that scare you otherwise but what i'm talking about is things that shouldn't scare you that give you life i don't feel like working today so you know what i'm going to do i'm going to lie in this sunny spot in my room and read without guilt not possible taking a break to give me life will actually drain me of it how many times do we see our mothers taking a break our mothers don't take a break women i've never seen a woman who took a break without talking to five of her friends about it and and saying some variation of i i i feel guilty or i feel ashamed or i feel like i shouldn't do that and perhaps my sense is that it's not coming from from a need to to always be working or always be in the middle of things it's coming from something else it's coming from a place where i can't take a beat and live a singular moment of my life I'm reminded of uh, something that eric from says in his text called the art of being he he says that it's not surprising that we endlessly talk about our lives in a way that doesn't allow the listener to really engage with the humanity of going through these experiences and we talk about these concerns that we have about our jobs and about all our duties and obligations it's not surprising that we do that because if a commodity could think that's exactly how it would talk and that's the beauty of the world we live in we do not think at all that we have been commodified human beings are the latest commodity in the market i mean it was that commodities were available for us to consume but now we are it and is that where the rage comes from you know when i find it hard to actually answer a question where rage comes from or or where anything comes from <laughs> i like to go back to the basics where does that word in this language come from so when we talk about rage what language are we looking at and how where has this um word in this language come from i i am not a linguist but i do have an interest in the evolution of language and how we use language there is a lot of speculation about there being um this one language one unifying language of the world called uh, proto-indo-european which is called by for short and then you know you have the latin roots and you have the old grecian roots you have welsh roots and scottish and french roots but my most favorite etymological explanation of the word rage or the root of the word rage comes from medieval latin where they say rage comes from the latin rebel or rabia which is literally the word for rabies and it translates as um, madness be mad rave not not like a the party but it's interesting that that party is also called a rave but you know when you say raving mad that kind of madness that is the root of the word rage in english it's interesting that madness is where rage comes from 
English is also a language that has allowed us to communicate and understand and study and, and accumulate all sorts of knowledge. But English, I'm also beginning to discover, is a very severely limited language. Not that I'm an expert in it. Not that I am a wondrous weaver of words of English. But the reason I say that it might be severely limited is perhaps because it has managed to make words like rage and anger interchangeable. Perhaps there's also something to be said for that a lot of this language is borrowed. And so it's like a certain kind of dissociation, uprootedness, mm-hmm. colonization is yes. woven into the language. Absolutely. When you start to look at rage as a question, the most, the first thing that emerges from it is like, what's the difference between rage and other kinds of expressions of that emotion? What is that emotion that you're expressing when you say I'm raging? And to me, it feels like rage is perhaps not an expression of an emotion. That perhaps the emotion is anger. But but anger is perhaps in a in a moment. The moment can be several moments long. It can be a tiny moment, a big moment. But anger is momentary. It is a reaction. I am angered by. There is an external event. There is an external thing or person. So anger is perhaps a reaction to what is happening to me. So you do something that angers me. There is something that I'm angry about. I'm not raging when something's done to me, but I'm raging when I'm mad and I feel like I'm going mad. When my skin is not enough to contain it, I'm raging. What I really appreciate about this is that we're moving from an understanding of maybe there's a quantifiable difference between anger and rage to perhaps a curiosity that there could just be a qualitative difference as well. I have nothing against numbers but I often feel that quantifiability of things makes us feel safer. When things are qualitative, when they're textural, when they're sublime, like that. When the difference in things lies in the subjectivity, they become really scary for us. They become scary for us because that means I have to explore things inside of me that that scare me, that I have no wish to unfold and air out because I don't know what will come out. Will I recognize myself if I unfold all of me? Yeah, this is a bit of a digression, but you said that there is a root word. I, I think you said revere, was it? For rage. It's revere, R-A-B-E-R-E. It's interesting that I heard revere and my mind straight away went to, again, once again, the world of the Witcher. The main character is called Geralt and he's from Revere. The The story, of course, I think carries uh, some pertinence to what we're talking about as well because the Witcher, which is his profession, the sky, he slays monsters in this world. You should know because you've just been on a date with him, given that you're, <laughs> you're wearing a choker and you really look like Yennefer, who's his love interest, and you would think that that the people of the land would be grateful to him for doing this great service, putting his life on the line. This mm-hmm. lady's 
mysterious creatures. But there are two interesting things. One, when he actually confronts these monsters, he has to magically enhance some of his abilities. Visually, they make him look like quite the monster too. His pupils dilate and, and just the white of his eyes, they also turn to black and it's, he really genuinely looks terrifying. He's very powerful, so I get that he's terrifying that way too. Mm-hmm. But the people actually treat him as an outcast as well, as though he doesn't deserve to be a part of their civilized little villages. Hmm, that's really interesting. I wonder what his motivations are. He was made into a witcher, abandoned by his mother and made into a witcher against as well. Much like some of the identities and histories that have been bestowed upon us that you were talking about earlier. It's quite a wonderful experience to hear you tell me about The Witcher and actually have a blank slate about it because this I have no opinion. I only have the information that you gave me and the thought that came to me is that he was made into a witcher against his wishes. He was made to slay monsters and he was made into a monster himself. He demands the gratitude of the people who he keeps on saving, putting his own life at risk. He keeps on saving these people, but these people, I don't know if they're grateful or not, uh, but these people, they look at him and they cannot seem to allow him entry into their worlds. Perhaps he reflects a part of the monstrosity that they carry inside them. Mm-hmm. I've heard the actors and the filmmakers and the writers talk about how, you know, maybe they should be grateful. But the character himself, he's quite shut out himself, as one would expect if you've just been assigned this this role, this category of not being uh, an insider and yet doing the dirty work for everybody then a part of you could just shut down to even wishing for connection, wishing for appreciation. Yeah, I I completely understand the shutting down and why you would go there, but I did not go towards the shutting down at all in my in my imagination when I think about this teacher who has been abandoned and forced to become something that he has no desire to be. And then not only is he forced to become it, because he's become it, he has to do the thing that he needs to do. He has to become a monster himself. He has to slay all these people. I imagine the route to shutting down, going through a large, large valley of unarticulable rage. The thing that I find most interesting about anger or rage is that we want to disavow it. We do not want to acknowledge that we have it. Observing little children around me, how they're raised, thinking back to my own experiences as a child. An angry child is often yelled at, put in a timeout, punished. Children are taught from a very early age that their anger is intolerable, that they have to control it and contain it forcefully if the need be. If you cannot do it, it will be done for you. Turns inwards. And what does it do? To to think about a unifying theory of what anger does when it turns inwards would be very difficult. So what it does to one person, it might not do to another. How do we come to value rage? What do we value in it? And perhaps then we could hope to have an honor code for rage. So 
is way too much to think about when you think psychoanalytically when a god writes about the value of aggression and how it might be expressed in an infant he talks about the infant um, acting out screaming hitting the mother and what it does for that infant in that moment the most lovely thing that vinograd talks about is that when the child is angry at the parent and the parent is able to bear it lets the child know that he can be loved even in anger even in this moment where he feels like he's too much mm-hmm. there is still love in the world that he he has access to but now imagine a parent who could not do that for it for their child imagine a world where none of us have parents who can bear our anger our aggression children with their tiny fists hitting their parents and parents screaming back at them to to control themselves what do we grow up into then we grow into a world where there is no expectation of being loved there is no recognition of what love looks like when we cannot contain ourselves when our bodies our skins our minds are too brittle or fragile or our sense of existence is too much all love disappears from the world warmth disappears from the world i really resonate with the sense that our existence could be too much for the world around us when you see that your anger or your show of rage is met with not only resistance but sort of like a punching bag you're set to think of the world as too fragile and explosive at the same time in its fragility it's like you ask somebody what kind of an impact do you want to make on the world and this person turns around and says but what's going to happen when the world impacts me it can be quite scary then to just move around because you're really just walking in a minefield but i think it goes both ways um speaking of winnicott he also worked with uh with children who were moved away from their parents um during a war into quote unquote safer places institutions that were meant to take care of them and one of the things that winnicott famously said about the children that he observed there was that it's the kid who rages who cries throws a tantrum that also has the chance of forming a real connection once his rage has been allowed to just exist and once it passes over this is the kid who has a real chance of making a connection with his caregivers too his acting out is in fact evidence of that he is carrying a stable internal object a loving internal object separating from whom is tormenting for him separation is always a torment it's the block in a in expression that creates other things it's difficult to approach feelings from a fixed point in time because chronologically on the outside when i look at you you look at me we talk about ourselves so chronologically we are a certain age right now in this moment while we are recording internally time does not exist linearly all my years all my years all my days they exist in the same moment and they just layered differently so at any given moment at any given time if i'm trying to access a feeling i'm not accessing the feeling of me right now at this age i might be pulling at a feeling of me at 4 years old or 14 years old or 17 years old and all these feelings could be different feelings my my 4 year old self could be aggressive and my 14 year old self could be depressed and my 17 year 
and myself could be angry and me right now i could just be numb i think it's the most fascinating explanation of transference that i've ever ever heard <laughs> i love physics using physics to think about human psyches to think about how we are all living a multiverse life that there is always a different timeline with every decision every choice we make let's say all big decisions that we make in life and and again when i say big decisions they become subjective right so for someone a big decision is choosing what to wear on a particular day for someone else a big decision is choosing who to marry mm-hmm. and stay with and live with for the rest of their life for someone else the big decision is which phd to go to so everybody's big decisions are subjective and not think about it every time we choose something when we are making a big decision in our life we're creating a timeline because we chose a instead of b but we are always leaving opportunity or or an alternate universe open where we chose b instead of a what would we look like then what would our lives look like then i find that fascinating because it might have been pessoa who talked about how we are always living the life that we do not have right now so we chose a but unconsciously we are also thinking about the life that we would have if we had chosen b I don't know in which version of the Peter Pan story there's a scene in which the mother sits with the three kids this is before they flown out of the window and uh, i think it's mrs darling right yeah she sits with the three darling siblings and they're about to go to an office party the dad is really dreading it because he's really bad at small talk <laughs> quite relatable so far so good and she's sitting with them and they're like ah oh, do you have to go and the whole conversation is a playful one between a mother and the children about choices we have to make despite mm-hmm. what we would rather do she talks about how their father and she have this little secret box of mm-hmm. dreams and desires that they keep in one of their bedside drawers sounds like repression to me well if they know about it is it repression i am not convinced that they know about it that's just me mm-hmm. even though they're talking about it i i remain unconvinced that they know about it well there is definitely a certain sadness in the act of having your dreams and desires sort of locked in a little box kept in a drawer by your side there's something mm-hmm. sad about it I wouldn't go for the word depressing I wouldn't reach for that but I'd say it's sad and it's solemnly sad and she tells them that sometimes they like to bring out that box and take a peep in and look at you know maybe a life in paris or maybe another very glamorous life and they look at all of these things and they laugh about it and then they quietly fold all these dreams again put them back in the box stuck it safely into the drawer hold hands and let out a deep sigh <laughs> I think it's it's quite poignant here are people who can perhaps mourn the lives that they have not lived we're talking about a parent who yells at a child when the child's anger becomes threatening but there's also so many other ways in which a parent can tell a child that you're too much for me and i think the darlings have made a different choice here of mourning instead of exploding and being fragile and arresting everybody including themselves in a storm of never ending wage hmm. it's interesting because 
while you were talking, I remembered that you asked me what it, a question about what thinking about certain things does to my relationship with being. And being is this word that can be understood in so many different ways. Like it's a continuation of the action of being. You be, and then continuation of that, being. And then there's just being, a human being. So when you're human and you're a human being, are you continuing to be human? Or are you just a being who's human? And I think if we are to consider the humanity of things, the fact that we exist and because I exist, someone else doesn't. So in the multiverse theory, they say that there are multiple Earths. In all of those Earths, there's a person, that's you, who's made a choice different than you have. So there is a, there's an Earth where I'm not a cis woman, I'm maybe a cis man, or um, there is a, there's an Earth where um, I am not born to these parents, but an, I'm an orphan, or there is an Earth where I do not choose to do my master's in, in, in psychology, I do it in something else. There is an Earth where I'm a horrible, horrible human being, and so, you know, you get the drift. So all the choices that you make, some other variation of it and and that person you exist in all those earths and it just makes me wonder about how temporality dictates our understanding of things of ourselves of what happens to us and how it happens to us and why it happens to us when something shitty happens people will often find solace in the times being bad when something good happens, the time's being good. Time is essential to human life. Coming back to the question of rage, rage is a frozen moment in time. It doesn't leave us. It's it's this rock we carry, and it's a frozen moment, and it's just inside me. One of the key readings that you shared with me, that you've mm -hmm. been working with while exploring this question, is bonds of love. Something that I, I took away from it was this argument that to live means to be able to sustain tension and perhaps Freud's conceptualization of the death instinct comes essentially from this observation that from time to time there is a tendency in all of us to want to remove tension altogether. And I find myself thinking about that right now. If rage is a frozen moment and mm -hmm. frozen in it, what happens to tension? Are we holding on to too much? Are we holding on to all those multiverses that could have happened? Are we holding on to the tension that I I believe the question of morality, whether something's moral or not, often brings in, introduces into our lives? Or is that tension exactly what we're trying to move away from? Mm -hmm. Or perhaps all these questions are completely uh, completely futile, given that rage is madness and um, and there's something elusive about madness. You know, let me start by just pointing out a really interesting thing, okay? Freud called the death instinct Thanatos. And it's interesting because mythologically speaking, Thanatos is the personification of death. He was the child of Nyx and Erebus. Nyx is night and Erebus is darkness. 
So the child of light and darkness and the twin of hypnos, which is sleep. And this family of four is just this night, darkness, sleep and death. What's the common thread here? It's intriguing that you would bring up Thanatos when you're talking about how one of the takeaways is this, of course, uh, that to sustain life, we must sustain tension. But what do we mean by tension and what do we mean by life? If I was to think in binaries, and, and again, binaries are restrictive. So you have night and day, life and death, sleep and awake. Perhaps the tension would be, as far as going on being and living is concerned, in this, in this context. Mm -hmm. Dreaming would be an act of sustaining tension between sleep and being alive. That is uh, a lovely interpretation, and and I I'm, I'm 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 very much in agreement with that. But you know, dreams also have qualities and textures, right? Like so, there's this. Not all dreams are identified as dreams. Sometimes you will wake up from one and say that was a nightmare, and sometimes you will wake up with this sensation like your chest feels hollow and your head is pounding and you're sweaty but you have no idea why and sometimes you just wake up and you're scared or terrified and cold and clammy and you remember that there is something to remember but what precisely they're all dreams but when we talk about these darker things you don't call them dreams, but for the purpose of our discussion, they're all full of tension. They're all keeping the string taut. So when you pluck it, it sends out a vibration. It, it sends out ripples through you. And now imagine a lake and you throw a tiny pebble and then it ripples and the ripples come off of it. Now that lake is you. And pebbles are things that happen to you. But now imagine all these pebbles, tiny pebbles, things that make you angry, things that you don't even know you're angry about. You keep throwing them and throwing them. And sometimes it's a very tiny pebble. doesn't even make a splash, doesn't even disturb the surface tension of the lake. Sometimes it's a huge boulder and it comes splashing down. And before you know it, there's this huge pile of rock in the middle of the lake and now the waters of being keep crashing on the edges of this rock the tension still exists the tension is not broken it's punctuated by the presence of this huge pile of rage pebbles now the thing is the tricky thing is i'm calling it rage pebbles are we all in a space to look at those pebbles and name it rage when we get that feeling can we name it rage are we free to call it that are we free to look at it and before we throw it away or store it away or like peter pan's parents put it in a box and look at it sometime later to look at it sometime later are we free to call it what it is that is also a privilege that we don't often think about freedom to call the thing by its name this is my sense in this conversation as well. I feel as though talking about rage essentially is is only something that at least I am able to do right now by talking about everything else but rage. Yeah, because it's such a such 
it's it's an inarticulable mess. It makes you inarticulate, and you know me. I am not usually without words. I am one with too many words, perhaps, but something about rage is so messy that words escape you, that language deserts you, and you do not know where to start speaking, how to start speaking about this. There's a lot of sputtering, there's a lot of grunting, there's a lot of guttural noises, there's a lot of frozenness. But that's not necessarily everyone's rage. That's that's the whole point. There are people out there who are able to express rage with a fire. There are also instances of frozenness in rage, cold fury, cold rage. I'm trying to highlight how different rage can look from anger. There's this country song, uh, I forgot the artist, but it's called Before He Cheats. And this lovely woman is really angry at her boyfriend. And then she's saying that I will pick up this baseball bat and I will smash all the headlights of his four-wheel drive. And I will take a knife and rip out, rip out or dig into the leather seats. And I'm going to, you know, make him regret all sorts of things so that he remembers all this. And before he cheats, she's obviously angry because the man has cheated and he she is um, angry about it she's really really angry about it and she does all these things to make sure he doesn't cheat again as opposed to Beyonce singing about rage when you listen to the song and I will tell you what song this is when you listen to the song when I first heard the song I was I did not watch the video it was not on YouTube I was on an um, song streaming service and um and i thought it was a love song and then i watched the video and i'm like hey can i write a chapter on on this when i write about rage and she does not raise her voice she's playful when she's singing she is sensual when she's singing she's you can you can hear a little laughter in her voice when you hear the song for the first time The way she says, hold up, you can hear laughter, you can hear playfulness, you can hear so much in her voice, everything except for rage, except for anger. And when you watch the video and then you listen to the song, you cannot think of anything else except cold, burning rage. And and, and that in itself is is such an oxymoron, right? Like, you know, cold is freezing and cold is burning. How do we speak about something? that we can't even talk about without contradicting ourselves cold burning yeah i think this is an interesting point that we've arrived at when you were talking about thanatos not thanos thanos is the mcu villain (laughs) Uh, thanatos being the child of uh, darkness and the night we sort of came to wondering if dreaming is an act of defiance against total death. Dreaming is an act of living. I also found myself thinking about night terrors. Mm-hmm. And there is something inarticulatable about night terrors as well. Ogden, in fact, uh, if I'm not wrong, says that they cannot be analyzed. There is no other there. Night terrors, as he formulates them, um, occur when the scene between dreaming and waking life, they have disappeared. And we awake, but there is no other whose arms can comfort us. 
yeah. voice can soothe us. And that was one picture, one image of rage that I was carrying. But the place that we've arrived at now reminds me of both Bonds of Love and Aronofsky's film Mother, exclamation mark. And again, I think that speaks to perhaps a bit specifically uh, the question of feminine rage as well. So at this point, I should just tell you that there are spoilers coming. This film, it's an exploration of the archetype of God and and nature and earth and mother, essentially, being like a married couple or not married, perhaps, but just, just a, a couple of lovers. This mother, she wakes up. She's not been given any name uh, in the film as well. She's just mother. Uh, he doesn't call her mother, but the audience knows. And she wakes up in this house that apparently belongs to him, where she tells us that it belonged to him. And she's renovating it. She's painting it, setting it up. She gives a lot to this house to make it into a home. And throughout the film, it seems as though he is elusive. She has to really do a lot to keep him engaged Hmm. with her, with this little world that they're trying to build together. Whereas here, he seems to be so much more invested, so much more easily seduced by being seen as this creator. At some point in the film, there are hordes of people who just enter the house. Like, he's a celebrity, and they want to talk to him, get interviews. And the whole film is quite dreamlike, so it's it's difficult to really explain what happens. But I hope that I'm able to communicate the essential experience of watching the story unfold. There's this mother. She's perhaps trying to birth a home, a world. And there's this quote-unquote father and she really just wants them to be able to spend time with each other i think sometime in the middle of the film she gets really angry and she tells him you can't even fuck me in the next scene she gets pregnant then as the film progresses quite grotesquely the child gets taken by the mob that has arrived at their place and shredded to pieces um she's grieving she's angry and she's beaten up by the mob and then eventually she goes down to the basement and there's a furnace there and she opens that furnace up and she sets the entire house on fire she burns with it and everything she burns everything down and she burns with it and that is the image of rage that i am connecting to right now and the reason i I find myself thinking of bonds of love is this is also something that benjamin sets up in the beginning of the text this relationship between the slave and the master she wonders what could be the motivation of someone who submits to someone else's domination and she comes to see that by allowing the other to violate me or turn me into an object i get to escape uh, the reality of my fragmentation because the other self is intact mm-hmm. but the danger is that as i as i keep getting negated from being a subject i keep getting turned into an object my ability to enable this dominating other to be recognized through my submission is also gone then i wonder if rage is like a last moment attempt to remind the dominating other that there's still something in me that could be taken in the end of the film mother god or this guy essentially he walks to the dying body of mother and he seems sad he's grieving he says i just need one last thing from you Mm -hmm. she says just take it whatever you want just take it he rams his hand in the middle of her chest and he pulls out 
what seems to be a stone, but is essentially a heart. He sets it up on a mantle, on a burnt mantle, and it glows and fires up the entire home, so everything becomes renewed. Mm. That's a grotesque um, image. I'm just thinking that when she felt like her heart was ripped out of her chest, she set everything on fire and burnt everything down and destroyed it and annihilated everything in a bath. And then this person reaches into her, physically rips out her heart, stone heart, whatever, and builds a new world on top of her ashes. Hmm. And the last scene of the film begins the same way the first one did. A woman waking from the bed and saying mm-hmm. the same thing. Honey, where are you? So the mother gets replaced by another mother who has to go through the same cycle of yearning, submitting, yearning, submitting, yearning, submitting to the point mm-hmm. where something truly precious is taken from her, her child. Mm-hmm. It is after that point that she will possibly burn everything to the ground again. Seems to be a really terrifying movie. It leads me to actually question, or if not question, then gently wonder about what gives life to anything emotional. My attachment to something, my emotional vulnerability, my inner emotional life, what gives it life? What happens when the source of that life is taken away or there's a restriction there or I'm unable to feel connected to it. There's this beautiful scene at the end of the first Kung Fu Panda movie where Tai Lung, the leopard, I think, the villain, the angry, angry villain of the movie has escaped his prison and is on his way to get even with Shifu and the villagers and get the dragon scroll for himself and Shifu, Master Shifu says the five warriors and foe away saying protect the villagers, protect them and I will hold him off as long as I can and you just leave right now and these these six students they do what their master tells them they gather up the villagers the villagers pack their bags and there's just this exodus from space from that area and Poe is speaking to his father about his disappointment that he couldn't do more that he has to leave because the dragon scroll was of no help and he feels terrible about it that he let his master down at that moment Poe's father says it's time I told you something and the panda thinks that perhaps and in fact even the viewer thinks that this is the time the duck says or the goose or the duck i i forgot um <laughs> the bird says <laughs> the father says you're adopted you know and 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 it'll be this revelation this panda will have but instead the father tells him the secret ingredient to the secret ingredient in soup <laughs> yeah. which is nothing <laughs> which is nothing yeah and that really cracks me up because it's really funny but it also cracks me up because that's a really excellent metaphor for life <laughs> thinking there's so much meaning to everything and i'm not saying there's no that there isn't there is so much meaning to everything but what if there there is also nothing i very recently watched this video of zizek talking about one thing and and he made a joke he he explained this wonderful point about absence and presence 
through a joke where he said that there was this man and you know in Italy a certain kind of man is made fun of and um, so this man goes to sleep every night and he puts one glass full of water on the table and he also puts an empty glass on the table hmm. because this man is not sure whether he will want to drink water during the night <laughs> not only does he make an arrangement for a glass full of water he also makes an arrangement for no water in a glass at all <laughs> you know like what if i wake up and i want to drink water so there's a glass full of water and what if i wake up and i don't want to drink water so there's no water in that glass so you know i'll just pick that up so zek makes that joke and he says that <laughs> it's it's a joke but it's poignant because it tells you one thing that the absence of a thing also needs to be marked yes. the absence in itself is not enough and we can go back and forth about about rage we can go back and forth about what causes it what what takes it away um how it um appears disappears but the fact that we are talking about it is marking its presence but again it's also important to mark it's absence mm that is brilliant <laughs> what is the secret ingredient here <laughs> nothing <laughs> oh did you just, um did you talk about rage yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> we did <laughs> that joke is by the way it's it's <laughs> possibly one of the naughtiest thirst traps i have ever <laughs> oh if this i could hear you talk about it as a thirst trap that's <laughs> um, absolutely fun conversation that we need to <laughs> at least that's how i imagine it i'm sure yeah when you when you talk to fun people it does turn into a fun conversation <laughs> we walk away wondering um so what was that nothing <laughs> well hmm would you like to pause for today that's all one can do pausing is essential also is it is an essential space to just take a step back and reflect about what was said and what wasn't like i said conversation is not hard it's conversation that connects to my and yours and perhaps is also of use to whoever listens to this the unbearableness of sustaining this kind of a conversation is from the space of feeling connected to feeling that i have no memory of or no intention to look at or it's it's difficult for whatever reason it is difficult for it reminds me of things or it reminds me of an absence an emptiness a flaw something that grates against my skin you know leaves a desert to shreds the conversation in itself is not hard the hard part is to tether it to experience to connect with the realness of this thing in an open enough way that it opens up a discourse rather than creates a space for subjective venting and and i'm not suggesting that subjective venting and spaces that offer it are lesser than uh, discursive spaces i am not suggesting that at all instead 
what I'm trying to suggest is that the purpose of creating something that touches the discourse as well as the subjective and brings it as close together as possible. So whoever comes in contact with it can open up a similar space within themselves and look at their experience of a thing within a discourse, perhaps confront their own privileges, confront their own difficulties in confronting their privileges and start a thinking revolution. So, and we've covered a lot of heavy, dense things to <laughs> Do you bring forward and then not sit with? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm walking away with, with quite a lot and with tension. With the tension between what was said, what was not said, mm-hmm. what was almost thought and demands to be thought more. <sighs> what was almost thought and demands to be thought more. Let me... I thought you were going to say that's the title of my sex tape. <laughs> I think uh, what I was going to say is, uh, is, is perhaps the title of your sex tape, but... Um, <laughs> but no, uh, what you said was very intriguing because I think uh, Pearl Jam already put it down in music and lyric. And let me let let Pearl Jam be the closing point of of today's conversation. Uh, there's this lovely song they have. It's called Unthought Known, and it says um, so. So the first stanza is, I think, a really lovely summary of at least one half of our conversation today. And they say, all the thoughts you never see, you're always thinking. The brain is wide, the brain is deep. Oh, are you thinking? Feel the path of every day. Which road you taking? Breathing hard, making hay. Yeah, this is living. (laughs) 